I want to talk this evening then about the role of ethics in the Christian life and in the medical school and hopefully how they are formed. While I was at supper, one other thing I was asked to say that I said at supper and one of the students there said, you really ought to say that to everyone. So, apropos of nothing in particular except that I ought to say it to everyone. How many of you managed to keep the Sabbath? That's good. Those of you who don't, do the experiment. Try it. God made us to have a day a week free. Uh, as Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 17, the Sabbath is a day for practicing being a prince, or princess if you prefer. Uh, the point being that you never see a prince carrying a burden. It's not a burden, the Sabbath. It's a day to celebrate your kingship to be. Put down all your burdens for a day. You can do anything you like as long as God is with you. Anything that interests you that you don't normally have time to do, play an instrument, read a book, whatever. It's not legalistic at all. It's to regenerate your soul, mind, body. Do the experiment. Just try it for a week or two. You will find that when you go back on Monday, you've got a clear mind. It's easy. Uh, that day off, which is attentive to God, gives you a perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have. So try it if you're not doing it. Those of you who are doing it know that that's true. Even during the many years when I was not an active Christian, I still kept the Sabbath because I liked it. <laughs> it was a day when I did something different that was good. So not legalistic, but freeing. Now, those of you who were here this afternoon for the two-hour session uh, can relax for a moment because obviously I'm going to start uh, with a point that I covered this afternoon. By the time you finish your medical training, your ethics will probably be reduced to what is known as the Georgetown Mantra. Autonomy, justice, beneficence and non-maleficence or malfeasance, depending on where you are. Now, have any of you ever heard that that's ordered? No, but it is. And the liberal order and the Christian order are quite different. Which is the most important of those four for the liberal? Autonomy. The sin of the Garden of Eden. When it's divorced from everything else. What's the most important one for us? The opposite end. God created and built for us a logical structure for morality which when followed leads to flourishing. That's the promise. The starting point has to be the negatives. You could call the Ten Commandments the Ten Divine Intolerances. Uh, that's what they are. Uh, and they can be legislated, or could be. And when they are, you have a basis for getting to beneficence, which is doing good, which is obviously the extension into the positive realm of the negatives of not doing harm. All nations, all cultures in the world will have something like, I ought not to kill my brother. Only Jesus takes it to, I ought, you ought to love your enemy. It's the same family, but it's much more highly developed. So, the beneficence in Christendom is its one of its wonders. And that stands on a foundation of non-maleficence. When you have got a transcendent set of laws, justice is possible. If there is no transcendent law, it is not. Now, this afternoon, and I'll quote again, those that were there this afternoon can listen, they might then remember it. Whenever possible, look for a non-Christian who makes your points for you. It helps. It takes a lot of the wind out of the opposition sails. And this point has been made brilliantly by an unbelieving Jewish professor of common law from Yale. Some almost 40 years ago now, 1979. Uh, he gave a lecture at Duke on the nature of justice because he was worried about lawyers student lawyers. And he was right. He begins like this. He says, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete, transcendent and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, 
findable rules that direct us as to how to live our lives righteously. The word there is immanent, not imminent. Immanent means available to you, comprehensible by you. Imminent means like the next exam. Uh, what, what is he saying? What's he referring to? What are the transcendent and immanent rules in a Jew's life? Come on, you must know. The law, yes, Torah. The Ten Commandments and everything that flows from it. Basically the book of Deuteronomy, if you like. Why did he want them? Because if the law is given by God and is from beyond us, then the judge and the judged are under the same authority and justice is a possibility. But he goes on. But I also want to believe and so do you in no such thing. But rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is to be simultaneously perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to invent it. I usually say, not even Americans can do that. Incoherent as you are, that level of incoherence is impossible. (laughs) That is amazing, because that's what we want, but it is not available. Leth then does something quite extraordinary. He writes 20 pages of lucid prose weighing these two propositions. He's a professor at Yale in the 1970s. He has to come down on the side of Darwin. So his penultimate paragraph goes something like this. He says, It looks to me as though we are all that we have. No God, no transcendence, just time plus chance. He doesn't say that, that's me. It looks to me as though we are all that we have. But he's honest. He says, Looking around the world, This is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. If brotherly love exists, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. And of course in your university you'd have to explain who Cain and Abel were because they wouldn't know anymore. Hopefully you all do. That's an astonishing statement. He said, only if the law was unspeakable by us would it be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. And three faculties teach that explicitly. Women's studies, black studies and queer studies. They teach their students that the law is not about justice, it's about power. And it's our failure to appreciate that that is their way of looking at things, that is half our problem. Uh, If a lie will serve, why would they not lie? They do it all the while. The most striking example was Martha Nussbaum from Harvard a few years ago, a very good scholar who uh, actually destroyed her own work in order to discredit Finnis from Oxford uh, over over the homosexual issue. When asked why she did it, she said it was necessary for the cause. Remember, that's what we're dealing with. So, without transcendence, there is no logical reason for law that will be about justice. There is only law as a means of power. And that's what we have to deal with. Laws are made that are not necessarily just and there will be more of them in the future unless we repent. Uh, We have laws in Canada that are not just. Every time I speak about homosexuality I am in danger of going to prison because we have a hate speech law which actually makes it an offence if I make a homosexual feel uncomfortable. That's a very dangerous law. Now nobody has charged me yet Uh, They probably will at some point. Uh, When it first came through, I sent an email to a good friend who writes uh, very uh, tough columns in the Capital City newspaper and asked him what he thought about it. And back came the email saying, I expect to see you in the next cell to me. (laughs) Uh, It may happen, I don't know. That's not something to worry about. When it happens, that will be the time. But that's where we're at. Now, when those things are in place, true autonomy can happen. That's why the law was given, so that we might be free. The law is a framework within which freedom can happen. What do you call a a state without any law? It's a state of anarchy, isn't it? Where the strong with the biggest guns win. The law is a gift, and it must be understood that way. Now, when it comes to medical school, you are being taught ethics and here's a place where you can do something quite striking for the faith in a very good way. 
and your liberal colleagues will probably assist you if you play it right. The first place where I induced this to happen was Madison, which is a very liberal uh, university. Uh, we teach medicine in all your schools, I hope, in a patient-centered fashion, right? But if you look at your ethics course, it is not patient-centered. It is rather as though if I were teaching internal medicine, I gave you ten lectures on Acrodermatitis Entropathica, of which you know nothing and need to know virtually nothing, and one on diabetes. That's the way we teach ethics. Because ethics are largely taught by tacitly atheistic bioethicists on a utilitarian base. And you won't see a tacitly atheistic utilitarian as a patient during the whole of your existence. So it is not patient-centered. You have every right to go and demand that the ethics course become as patient-centered as the rest of it. Now one of my colleagues in McGill has done this brilliantly already. Uh, so here's another way you can go, here's a suggestion for how it could be done. Being a good, honest, practical internist, he heard me chattering on in my usual fashion and I was staying with him and he said, something needs to be done about that. He said, what do you think about this as a way to do it? And he thought it through. He volunteered to teach the bit of the course we all hate teaching. That is the introduction to clinical skills. <laughs> the reason we hate it is that you can't feel the spleen, you say yes to hearing sounds you can't actually hear, uh, and so it goes on. Uh, it's all a bit of a charade, isn't it? Uh, but somebody has to do it uh, and pretend that you're actually understanding, although we know that in the long run the patients will teach you, but most of you anyway. If you can't do it, you become a surgeon. But, um, <laughs> But he volunteered to teach this bit and he did something very smart. Now McGill's in Montreal, a very cosmopolitan place. So he got all the students, anonymously of course, to write down their belief system. He gave them a list of options uh, so that it wasn't too long. Basically you're talking about the world's great religions and you could probably reasonably in the Western world divide up Christianity into uh, really four if you wanted to, in the end that's what he did, Catholic, Protestant, and you could divide those evangelical and liberal and orthodox, uh, but then you've got the usual great religions, uh, and you add agnosticism and atheism and nothingness, and that'll do. Uh, you can make your own list, but it doesn't need to be very long, and you got them to fill it in. Now, is the average medical class a random cross-section of America? It's not, is it? And in Canada, it's more so. Uh, that's because immigrants have more energy than people who've grown lazy by living the easy life. Uh, and particularly in the Asian culture, they still seem to honour medicine. So we have everything represented. Then, when he got that histogram up, he put next to it the data for Canada. Now, unlike America, Canada has no hang-up about church and state in the way that you do. So we have no compunction. We ask every 10 years Canadians who fill in the census if they get selected for that sample to say what they believe. And StatsCan is a very good organization. Uh, it actually pays for itself, which is remarkable for a government uh, organization. Its data is so good that both you and the Europeans uh, buy it, which is wonderful. Uh, so, knowing that Canadians didn't actually know what they believed, they gave them a list of all the world's known religions. Everything from uh, agnosticism to Zoroastrianism and everything in between, including Satanism and nothingness. Uh, and Canadians are very good form fillers, unlike Americans. <laughs> There's the additional incentive that you get fined if you don't fill in your census. So, uh, but. I know what they did. They found out what they were by knowing what they were not. I'm not a Zoroastrian, don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, I'm not actually a Satanist. I'm not a nothing. <laughs> I'm not actually, come to think of it, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu or a Buddhist. Oh dear, I must be Christian. <laughs> and Canada is a country of oh dear, I must be Christian people. 
they're not proud of being Christian, but insofar as they have any means of handling death, suffering and injustice, they're Judeo-Christian ideas. And so then they had to decide whether they were Protestant or Catholic. Now, we do it every 10 years. And believe it or not, there are only just over 30 million people in that second largest country in the world to the north of you. There is actually something where the television weather finishes. It's called Canada. Uh, <laughs> and long may it remain the way it is. You know, I can leave the capital city and in seven minutes I can switch my car onto cruise control and drive for the next uh, 50 miles without touching the brake. And I'm then within 10 kilometers of my home, my farm. And I hope it remains that way for a long while. Uh, the longer Canada remains a well-kept secret, the better. Uh, we have this wonderful arrangement that another country doesn't realize that it pays for our defense. It's marvelous. <laughs> anyway, we filled it in. And when they added up the numbers, out of the 30 million or so Canadians, in the end, something just under 13 million decided they were Catholic. Just about 10 million decided they were Protestant. So that's 23 million out of just about, just over 30. What do you think the third biggest religion in Canada is? And in Britain, actually. Hmm? Islam, everybody says that. No. Hmm? No, agnosticism is just a blip on the horizon. Nope. It's nothingness. I call it Seinfeldism. <laughs> I mean, what do you make of a nation that sits and watches a show about Jewish angst in which nothing of any importance ever matters and there's no consequence to anything? I gather they did have the final show where they got themselves into prison for there being no consequence. Is that right? I need to see that sometime. I've not seen it. I'd like to see that. But that's nothingness, nihilism, soft nihilism, comfortable nihilism, but nihilism. Um, no, in the world's most multicultural nation by far in terms of population base, uh, which is Canada, Australia actually passed us per annum a year or so ago, but over the last 20 years we've taken more immigrants than any other country in the world. You assume that the person you're talking to was not born in Canada. That's, that's a pretty safe assumption. Uh, in this very multicultural nation, we're not at all multicultural. Now, if we collected ethnicity, it would be a very different story. But if Canada is to be redeemed, it's probably going to be redeemed by the Korean and Chinese church. And Britain, if it's to be redeemed, may well be redeemed by the Nigerian church. That's the way it is. They're alive and well. Uh, the rest of us aren't. So, in the next 10 years, the, 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 10 years ago, no other group exceeded 400,000. Um, add it up, you've got what's left. The Muslims, of course, were quite sure they were well over a million ten years later. They weren't. And their figures are always inflated because their offspring consider, still put themselves down as Muslim until their parents are dead. But Muslim children are amongst the least likely to hold on to their faith of their parents once they reach the Western world. They're not threatened by Christianity. What are they threatened by? Materialism. Yeah. Things. Money. Uh, they're not the only culture that's vulnerable to that one on a big scale. Um, the people who know that best are the tax collectors. Uh, Canada used to have the highest spontaneous uh, collect, uh, payment of tax in the world 30 years ago. I had a friend who worked in Revenue Canada for years. Now, if they were allowed to target ethnically, they could easily double the income. Which groups do you think consistently underpay their taxes? And which pays the most? The, the one that pays the most will surprise you, so I'll tell you, it's the Africans. Because they are used to governments that take anything they want. So they pay up front in the hope that they'll be left alone. And my friend said, when we go and do an audit on an African, the first thing they say is, how much do I owe? And he said, I usually said, we probably owe you. <laughs> and almost invariably, the African gets a check. Which, which groups do you think don't get a check? Come on, some of you come from them, you know. Own up to it, because it's good for your soul. <laughs> One at the back, I see, uh, you're right, the Chinese, yeah. <laughs> the Chinese, the Indians, and the Lebanese. Uh, that's just the facts. Cultures are different. 
So, in the next 10 years, what happened? Well, only one group significantly grew. Everybody said the church is in decline. It wasn't. The liberal church is in decline. The ones that unbelievers know about, of course, most of them are empty or half empty. But the Pentecostal church is making up for it on the Protestant front, and the Catholic church is doing fine, thank you. Not growing dramatically, but certainly not declining. So, the Protestant proportion of Canada remains much as it was. But one group really grew. Which one? The Seinfeldites, they grew. They almost went up by 50% in 10 years. In Britain, they've reached 16 million out of 65 million. And there were another few hundred thousand who said they were Jedi Knights. Uh, (laughs) That's Britain. An amazingly decadent place with the highest abortion ra- one of the highest abortion rates and one of the highest burglary rates in, in uh, Europe now, and the place with the most hidden cameras anywhere in the world. London. Um, vast security money being spent. That's why they could find the bombers and things, because there were so many pictures, they were bound to find them if they spent long enough looking, you know, they did. So that's the world we live in. So you have every right to do what David did, or to demand that your school does what David did. So when he got this data, he said to the students, is there a bias here? And of course, you're still bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and relatively honest at that stage. So they said, yes, there is. Uh, real Canadians are underrepresented. And so he said, well, I'm going to help those of you from the more obscure religions in Canadian terms this afternoon, but all of you. And what he did was very smart. He got a rabbi and a Jewish physician. Got a liberal Protestant and a liberal physician, a Catholic priest and a Catholic physician, an Orthodox priest and physician, a Hindu priest and physician. Couldn't find a Buddhist priest and uh, in fact, couldn't find a Buddhist physician to get and priest combination. Uh, and certainly no secularists. They have no priests. Uh, and then the students had to rotate round each of those groups that afternoon in small groups to discuss how my people, as a rabbi or pastor would say, understand death and suffering. It was by far the most popular event in the whole of the introductory course because real things were learnt about real people and they were stunned in many cases. And you could demand that. Not on grounds of religion, but on grounds of patient-centred teaching. I'm not going to see a tacitly atheistic utilitarian So why are you spending so much time teaching me about him? I want to learn about real people. Now, in your different medical schools, you may need to make some adjustments if you have particular communities around you. But wouldn't you all like to have a a Muslim imam and physician tell you how they understand death and suffering? And the Muslim students who are going to work in this culture would like the the opposite too. It's a way to get real. And that's what the medical school is supposed to be about. So use your powers of persuasion to get there. You can do it the same way. Ask what patient-centered ethics would look like. Set it up a little bit. Talk to the abrasive liberals in the class who like to think of themselves as tolerant and open-minded. Hold their nose to the grindstone, make them do it. Uh, In fact, they're very willing to on the whole. Uh, And get some real ethics that way. See, all your patients inhabit stories, essentially. How many of you have to analyze whether an action is right or wrong before you know? How many of you know intuitively, immediately? How many of you are asleep again? (laughs) Think about it. How many of you have to analyze to get to right and wrong? How many of you get there anyway? All of you do, really, don't you? We don't think about whether an action is right or wrong in most cases. We know. The question is, how do we know? As different cultures know differently on some issues. Uh, Female circumcision is an important rite of passage in the Horn of Africa. It's the right thing to do. Taking money from someone else to give it to your brother is right in certain parts of Africa. Uh, There are differences, but underneath there is objective moral truth. There is no society in the world that doesn't have an honor code, you see. That's the fundamental requirement for society. How you express that may vary. 
So if your business went bankrupt in America 50 years ago, what did you do? What was your duty? You sold everything, didn't you? Paid as many debts as you can, could and made yourself a pauper. And everybody considered that honourable. And then usually somebody gave you a hundred bucks to get started again, because these things happen. If you were in Japan and your business went bankrupt, what did you do there? Commit suicide, that's right. Now, what do you think the guys at Enron did? They hired a fancy lawyer to pay as little debts as possible, right? And when they've done their short terms in prison, they'll be back to wreck another company. And that is honourable because we allow it. All societies have honour codes. That's a fundamental principle. But how they're expressed varies. As we say, there's honour amongst thieves. But there has to be honour for any... Even a, a society of thieves needs some sort of honour code. Uh, so ideas about truth and justice and honour are fundamental. The way they are expressed vary. And how we get this is, I think, a very interesting question. Um, I came to think about this question through the problem of malnourished children. As I told you previously, uh, the problem was that we couldn't teach nutrition education uh, to animistic pagans because they believed that causation was in evil spirits and so there was no basis for nutrition education. So very shortly, being the person I am, uh, I don't do experiments I know the answer to, uh, I was not doing enough work to satisfy my do-gooding wife. And so she said, why aren't you saving more lives this year and visiting more villages? And I said, I'm thinking. <laughs> and she said, it looks to me like you're doing nothing. To which I said, that's what thinking looks like to you. And we had one of our fairly standard family rows. Uh, we're very good at that. Um, the only text in the Bible that describes our relationship is iron sharpens iron, sparks fly. Uh, we both maintain that we win every argument uh, and we've been at it for 40 years so I don't suppose it's going to stop um, but I'd strained out the paediatric ward and it returned to square one within a year and I knew I could already measure the decline in my nutrition program so my kids were busy resuscitating children they loved doing it, that was fine and I was sitting around thinking uh, but Sally got her own way. She said, at least you could do a Bible study for the African graduates who are unemployed in a village. That hit me like a two-by-four over the head because if I'd had somebody in my class for a year, even a biochemistry class, uh, they should go away at the end of that year with a reading list that would keep them busy for the rest of their lives. In other words, they might be unpaid, but they ought never to be unemployed. That would be my objective as a teacher. But these guys have been to university, got a degree, and not got an education. Because there are prerequisites to getting an education. Africans can ace our universities these days because they have much better memories than we have. They don't waste them on trivia in the same way. Uh, the first time I ever preached in Africa, it was in a village in the Atumbi Mountains, and I came back a year later, and the pastor in the village asked me to preach again. But before I began, he reminded the congregation of my sermon from the previous year, accurately. I was stunned. And I said to him, that was an amazing performance. Uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, you remember the sermon. He said, of course we did. Do you mean they don't remember them in Canada? <laughs> I said, they've forgotten by the time they get to the door. <laughs> Wouldn't believe me. Good job I wasn't going to preach the same sermon. But, <laughs> but that's that's how it is. So, it happened, God in his wisdom being at work, that I had in the previous year heard a wonderful series of lectures in Ottawa by one of America's greatest Old Testament scholars, Bruce Walkie. Uh, and he had given a series of lectures on covenant in the Old Testament. And in that series of lectures, he had made a comment that really hit me very hard. He said, if you ask an Orthodox Jew how come the Jews survived despite being for 2,000 years without a homeland? They will tell you to read Deuteronomy 6. Now, if I took you nice uh, white Americans anyway, 
uh, to the airport and had the power to put you on a plane and I'll be kind to you, fly you to a place that speaks a language vaguely like yours um, and you were never to return to America again nor your offspring, how long would they remain American? Not long, eh? If you're Canadian, six weeks would be a long survival. We integrate very quickly. Uh, but the Jews were 2,000 years without a homeland, still identifiable as Jews. That's a miracle. And the Orthodox will tell you that Deuteronomy 6 is the solution. And I didn't know what Deuteronomy 6 was. Well, I knew what it was when I got there, but I didn't know that it was Deuteronomy 6, so I learned one thing immediately. It's the centre of Jewish faith, the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, I started thinking about it a lot. And it has become very important to me. Uh, and now I find to a lot of other people as well. Because it, when you think about it, it solves a lot of our problems. We've made some big mistakes, especially in the way we do missions. Rwanda was a big shake-up. I mean, the gospel had arrived in Rwanda in the 1930s in the Rwanda revival. And you can still find old people who remember that and tell you that they danced in the streets with joy when the gospel came and they were set free from fear of evil spirits. Animism is a fearful state of life and Christianity sets you free. Then they did something you know something about. They tried to keep the feeling alive. If you go to a church service in Eastern Zaire or Rwanda or Burundi, you can have as many as seven choirs sing on Sunday morning. I mean, the, the, the church goes on from nine till one o'clock, you know, uh, you come and go, but lots and lots of singing. And the preaching, such as it is, is more performance than content. And that's why they didn't have the wherewithal to behave as they should have done under those dreadful circumstances. Both Catholics and Protestants killed one another. People killed people they'd sat next to in church purely on the basis of tribal loyalty. It's horrendous. They hadn't had the training they needed. Now, what Deuteronomy is, is the world's greatest commencement address. If you ever have to give a commencement address and you don't know what to say, just paraphrase Moses. They won't know what you've done. But this is the world's greatest commencement address. Moses is not going to go into the Promised Land. And so he's telling the children of Israel what is going to be necessary if they flourish. And there are a lot of lessons for us. First of all, he asks them the question, what is your greatest possession? What's the greatest possession of the Jews? Hmm? The Ark. Well, the law. That's the one that Moses chooses. Let me read it to you. It's from Deuteronomy 4. He says this, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. Who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people? For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. That's Moses' opening to this amazing commencement address. He then goes on to remind them of something that evangelicals need to think about a lot. And that is the role of the subjective experience of God in our lives. Now, I think I'm on fairly safe ground in proposing that none of you had a conversion experience, however striking it was, that came close to the experience of God at Mount Horeb or Sinai. God turned up and spoke the Ten Commandments in a voice they understood, accompanied by thunder and lightning and a volcano. Anybody come close to that one? <laughs> Not really, right? Did any of the people who were there that day ever afterwards have free will about not believing that there was a real God? They didn't, did they? It was over. 
they all knew that God was real. And they said, as you all said when you became Christian, we will obey. And they all did as you did. They disobeyed very quickly. In fact, they were so frightened of this, they sent Moses up the mountain and said, we'll obey, you go and talk to God. <laughs> and while he was up the mountain, they broke the first three commandments in order. Not a good start. And when Moses comes down the mountain, he says, God knows about you. And he tells them what God said. And he says, God said, I have heard all that this people have said. Oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law that it might go well with them and their children forever. The clear implication, indeed, the statement that they would not do so, that they would lose their land. The law, a gift for our flourishing. The framework within which freedom can happen. And they turned it down. You would think then that if that kind of subjective experience of God does not make you good, we might as well pack up and go home. But Moses says no. And the solution lies in a very extraordinary place. It's in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. Now can anybody tell me what comes next? Who's not reading it? Thank you, that's the wrong answer. Someone said, love your neighbour as yourself, and I hope many of the rest of you were thinking it, because that's in the New Testament. But Jesus is actually quoting Leviticus on that occasion, which is unusual, because Jesus normally quotes Deuteronomy. But on that occasion, for that purpose... Nope, it's not false idols. Good of you to... You see, he's, t he's wise. There is no more 100% learning experience than getting it wrong in front of 200 people or more. You never forget the answer again after that, will you? It's, it, I tell students, if there's something you can't remember, you should pay me to ask you in front of the whole class. Uh, you'll never forget the answer again. It's a 100% learning experience, so never pass it up. And anyway, neither the faith nor the bedside is a place for intellectual pride. Now, what comes next is stunning. And I read it for years. And in fact, the tape that CMDA still sells uh, is a clear indication of my inability to read carefully because it's only half correct. Uh, what comes is, and you shall teach these things diligently to your children. When you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, you go on a journey. But I miss something out. It's, I should have written a praise and then I would have got it right. But it says this, these things shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. Not in church, but in the domestic setting, particularly the dining room table in our culture. What's at stake here? Oh, huge things are at stake. The whole nature of education is on display. And the deconstruction of the faculty of education is on display too. Uh, I used to spend about 20 minutes explaining this and then my wife pointed out to me that one of my favourite writers, the great American writer, Wendell Berry. Do we have any Wendell Berry readers here? Not. Oh, thank you. Two. Uh, that's very good. That's encouraging. It's a start at least. Uh, he's one of your greatest writers. He's implicitly Christian, not explicitly so, and if he wasn't a Christian he'd have a Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, he writes, he's written the social history of an imagined community in Kentucky over the whole of the last century. And it's actually a wonderful description of the fading of real Christian faith in its effect on culture and character. Beautifully done. He also writes essays uh, and poetry. And he's certainly got a little book that all of you should have on your shelf called Life is a Miracle which is a deconstruction of the social Darwinian, Zio Wilson, and the defence of the sanctity of life, which begins with a meditation on King Lear. It's brilliant. But in his first novel of the Port William series called Watch With Me, the hero is a farmer called Ptolemy, Proudfoot, uh, and the heroine is Miss Minnie Quinch, the village teacher. Now, so that you get a sense of how good a writer he is and perhaps go and buy one of his books, I think Hannah Coulter is in the stores at the moment. It's a lovely story. Um, he describes Ptolemy thus. He says, Ptolemy was a big man. 
whose clothes looked as though they had been taken by surprise 20 minutes after he put them on. You get the picture immediately, don't you? You know exactly the kind of man he's talking about. Warm-hearted, exuberant and overwhelming for his clothes. Uh, Miss Minnie, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. She was the petite little village teacher who could keep everyone in order uh, and who loved the children. And what he said was this of Miss Minnie. He said, Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques which she never subsequently used because Miss Minnie loved children and she loved books and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. That's teaching. Teaching is the gift of two passions. Passion for the pupil and a passion for the subject. Most people who go into teacher's college love children, but they don't love learning. So when you go for parent-teacher's day, or whatever they call it down here, you have a little love-in about the funny quirks of little Jimmy, and you neglect to notice that little Jimmy hasn't learned anything. There's another teacher, quite a rare teacher, but does exist, who loves the subject but not the kids. That's the teacher you were all terrified of. Uh, you are going to learn some algebra or some French or whatever it is, whether you want to or not. And when your parents go for parent-teacher day, they get a lecture on how much better you would be doing if you took more interest. Uh, but then occasionally you meet a Miss Minnie who loved you and loved a subject. Many of you are here today because of a Miss Minnie at some point who turned you on for learning and gave you a heart for medicine in some way or another. That's the way it happens. That's what is at the heart of Judaism. And there's an interesting fact here. There's a guilt trip for the men. The way you have to do this is extraordinary. It's right down the chapter uh, in verse 20. This is what Moses says. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and you tell the story of the faith. God's dealing with the nation right up to your own faith story. That's how children learn. They have, don't they? Well, let me ask a question and I'll find out how many of you read to children. What is the difference between the response of an under five and a seven-year-old to the question, would you like a story? And while you're thinking about it, I'll give you my answer and watch your faces and I'll know whether you read to children. The seven-year-old will go to her bedroom and bring you the book she's in the middle of and milk you for as many chapters as you will read. She can read perfectly well herself, but she still loves to be read to by mum or dad or granddad or grandma. Uh, I've watched my wife read for hours. She's good at it. I, occasionally they come to me. <laughs> the under fives, however, they go to the bookshelf, even in our house, and they bring a favourite book. Now, if they bring it to me, I get bored easily. And I've read this book many times before. And I try and shorten it. <laughs> Grandad, as one of them said, have you forgotten how to read? <laughs> the little brat has brought me a book he knows every word of. <laughs> so why on earth does he want me to read it? but he does, and I'd better do that. God hardwired children to want repeated stories in their lives. Now, I thought about this from a paediatrician's point of view, obviously, and to my great joy, a year or two later, I was actually sharing a session at a conference with Bruce Walkey. at a lovely conference, Physicians and Theologians at Regent College, where Bruce Walkey taught. And so I said to him, they're going to get Bruce Walkie live and then plagiarised. <laughs> but he, he had not thought about the paediatric side of it at all, and he was delighted. Uh, I'd watch this. It, it is true of every culture that I visited that children want repeated stories. God made them that way. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to find out who they are and how they are to live. And God has hardwired them to believe that the stories that are repeated in the tribe, so to speak, will teach them that. So, if the repeated story in a child's life is derived from the Old Testament, 
you will get a Jew with Jewish ethics. If it's from the Bible, you'll get a Christian with Christian ethics. If it's from the Quran, you'll get a Muslim with Muslim ethics. If it's from the Book of Nature, you'll get a pagan with pagan ethics. And if it's television, you get an American with American ethics. <laughs> Sadly, that's a very important issue. You see, there was a lot of fuss in evangelical churches not long ago about Harry Potter. Harry Potter is no danger at all to your children if they have already been firmly rooted in the Bible story because they can tell the difference between the real thing and the fable. But if Harry Potter is the first book they really take an interest in, that's bad news. And television is even worse. What's the repeated story on television? Yes, but where in television does that occur? Advertising, that's right. That's the repeated story on television. And if you don't believe me this is important, when you go back to church or get somebody in your church to do this little test for the seven-year-olds or thereabouts, write a series of clues to the major Bible stories, you know, like who spent a night in the lion's den, who spent some time in the whale's belly, uh, who was a good Samaritan, you know, whatever. Very simple, who was born in a manger. And then pollute your mind for a few hours and write down some clues to television ads. And then test the seven-year-olds. They will be 100% on the advertising for the past few years and a very low score on the Bible stories. Does it surprise you they kill for a pair of shoes in high school? That's what they've learned. What does advertising legitimise? illegitimized drunkenness, covetousness, materialism of all sort, uh, rampant sexuality, it's all there. That's what we've taught them, that's what they're doing. In fact it's down to this, isn't it? What's that? Nike, what does it mean? Just do it. Isn't that what they're doing? They're just doing it. That's what we've taught them. Now you go to Africa and it's the reason the church has problems in the area of money. The commonest question I get asked in Africa by pastors all the while is why can't I trust the Christians with the money? Uh, and I say well that's because you are new Christians in a fading pagan story. When you become a Christian you do not become good, you become redeemed. You then have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's why the epistles were written. Converts did not become good they start on that process and God can, if he wishes, take a bad habit that's going to destroy you away instantly. But he doesn't normally do that because that would make the world incomprehensible. It would become magical and the world is consequential. So you live with the consequences of what you've already done. If you have had sex before marriage, there is no way in this world that you can marry as a virgin. That is gone. And you pay the price for that. And there is a price, a very real price attached to that. And so it goes on. When you lie, the real consequence is that you become a liar. You can be forgiven, but it doesn't take the consequence away. By working on it, you can give the sins back to Christ and they can be redeemed that way, but that's the only way they can be redeemed. So, in Africa, a few years ago in Nigeria, I had a wonderful conference. I ended up teaching the Anglican bishops in Nigeria, who are a marvellous group of guys. Uh, the first place in Africa where I found second and third generation Christians, which is the first time you can really expect to see virtue emerging. Uh, Paul said, don't give positions of authority to new Christians. He knew what he was talking about. The reason the early church survived is that it was Jewish. And God had already spent 2,000 years teaching the Jews. He expected them to keep the third commandment, which is not about formula of words, it's about promise keeping. When you swear, especially by my name, you'd better keep your word. That makes banking possible. In the Western world, we couldn't run our own banking system for nearly 1,500 years. That's how long it took us to learn that. Well, it took the Jews 2,000, so, well, we don't know how soon they learned. But by 2,000, they were pretty good at it. It's a long, slow process. And I asked the African bishops, what are the stories that your children in the villages inhabit? I knew what they were, but I wanted them to say it. And of course most of them are animal fables about a spider who comes over to the Caribbean as a Nancy and even appears in the southern states, uh, a rabbit, uh, 
a tortoise. And if you notice what these stories are and who the hero is, the hero is a little animal that beats a big animal by trickery. So a Nigerian kid and many African kids grow up with a con man as a hero. Does that explain those emails you get every week about, I've got a million dollars in a bank account I need to transfer to you, just give me your number? That's amazing. Uh, and the ability to win by, by fast talking is much appreciated in Nigeria. Uh, if you're ever there, it's worth doing. Um, even when the person that you're doing it with has authority. The time before last when I was there, I was traveling for about a week all over Nigeria with just an African driver going from one medical school to another. I think I did 13 medical schools in a week or something like that. And on the way back to go home, uh, we were stopped at a roadblock and uh, they came to the driver's side and asked for his documents. It turned out he didn't have his insurance. Now, they pulled him out. Uh, now, I also knew he didn't have any money. Uh, so I knew that in a minute or two, they would appear at my side of the door to see what they could extract from me. And sure enough, they did. Well, I'd thought about what I would do, so I laid a guilt trip on them, uh, saying, is this how you treat your visitors? Here I have, I've been in... Nigeria, teaching in all your medical schools for free, and I'm just about to go home and catch a plane, and you're going to destroy all that? Is that your hospitality? And they gave in, and they said, you better go, and I was on my way. Uh, <laughs> round one to me, but I knew there would be a round two, um, because they do have radios. Uh, there would be another roadblock down the way, and they would radio on and say, this guy's just got through without paying anything. See what you can get out of him. It's part of the game. Sure enough, 20 miles later, we were stopped. And again, they came to the driver's side, and he was about to lie. I said, don't lie, they already know you don't have your insurance. They radioed that through, and they did. So they pulled him out, off they went. This time, the chief of the roadblock turned up at my window. And they discovered, of course, that I was Christian at the previous roadblock. And he said, um, do you know that bit of the Bible in Matthew, where it says, if your enemy takes you to court, you should settle with him on the way? I said, yes, I do know that chapter quite well, as it turns out. Do you know what comes a little later? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You're about to perjure yours and end up in hell. Is that what you really want to do? And he said, get out of there. And they didn't <laughs> stop us again. Uh, that's Nigeria. It's fun. You know, they're, they're, they're good... They're good rogues, basically, on their way to being faithful. Uh, and everywhere you go, the name of Jesus appears. Uh, God saves is on the back of most trucks and prepare to meet thy doom on the rest of them, you know. And it's appropriate because there's a crash every 25 miles and they leave the wreck for years, you know, to rust away. And they put the names of Jesus everywhere. It, it, my favourite of all time is a, I forget where it was, but it was the Blood of Jesus Chicken Feed Company. And I thought that was just wonderful. <laughs> Those chickens grow faster than any others, you know. <laughs> and everywhere you go, they say, I mean it, you're welcome in Jesus' name. But no one trusts anyone else yet. It were the, 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 the African Anglican bishops were the first. Trust is a huge gift that becomes stronger with every generation. That's why there are people in your class you can trust who do not believe. Ask them about their family history. That's where you will find a solution. That's the pre-evangelism question. And when you marry, women, you've got to keep your husband in line. He has got to teach the stories of the Bible to all his children from his mouth before the age of seven. That means he has to be there for dinner. Uh, now, amazingly, my wife understood that before I worked this out. When we came to Canada, uh, several things happened. We'd been living in the Caribbean, then we went to Britain for about 18 months, where at least the television BBC had no advertising. Allegedly the best in the world. Questionable. But uh, if best is a meaningful adjective in relation to television at all, but... Uh, then we came to Canada and I said to my children, who were then aged, I suppose, five to ten, four of them, I said, as far as I can see, there are multiple channels, none of which are worth watching, but what do you want to do? And bless them, they said, you know, in Jamaica, this was children, we played more games and read more stories. It was better. 
we won't have a television. And we never had one. My oldest daughter was very sociable and she was worried that she wouldn't be able to join in the conversations at school, but she discovered that the plots of the uh, programs that mattered were so predictable, she could predict them. Uh, nobody ever discovered that she'd never seen them. She was very good at it. Uh, but the most important result was that the church we went to, I have one minute, oh, that's ten minutes left, isn't it? Good, oh, thank you. Um, had a reading competition because they knew that illiteracy in Canada was growing. They stopped the year after we arrived. Because in the absence of television, that was not 20 hours a week gone down the tube, literally. It was reading time. So my eight-year-old still won his category in church, even though he included The Lord of the Rings, all three volumes, as one book. They gave up the year after we arrived. It's a family failing. Uh, I, I read The Lord of the Rings in pretty fast time when it first came in. I was a bit older than eight because uh, it wasn't published till I was a doctor, <laughs> but I still read it one Christmas, much to my wife's family's amazement that I could read and sort of join in the conversation at the same time. But then my son read it at eight, and just this year my grandson read it at eight, so it must be some sort of quirk of the genes, I don't know. But reading matters. Paul says pay attention to reading. And the dining room table is the best place to educate your children. All my children have said to me at some time that our most important education occurred at the dining room table. But those two things are important. It must be upon your heart and you must do it diligently. You must love the subject and love the child. And they know, don't they, when, you, when you're insincere. Little children have hypocrisy detectors, don't they? Uh, and they're very, very accurate. Uh, so don't do it when you're not in the mood. My kids still remember one Sunday where I said I'd been angry quite unjustifiably and I hadn't yet said sorry. And so I said, I can't say grace. I'm in no situation or space to say it. It's the most miserable meal. Uh, neither I nor they did that sort of thing again. Those things are important. Remember the stories. And the stories of faith in your family matter. Um, we have lots by the grace of God. Uh, you only get them if you go out of your comfort zone, so never refuse that option. If God wants you to go somewhere, go. Don't do the Jonah thing, it's not worth it. Um, just before Sally got sucked into the results of the Rwanda, the Rwanda war, and I was going to be separated from her for most of two years, without email connection even in 94 to Central Africa, 95, it was important that we not be anxious. So God set it up. It's amazing. Uh, one night we were travelling late in Zaire, which you shouldn't do because it's it was anarchic at that stage and is even more so now. And we were stopped by a drunken soldier with a, a Kalashnikov and hauled out of the vehicle. Now he could have killed us on the spot, it often happened, and taken everything and nothing would have happened to him. There were a few Africans, my son, my wife and myself. But he didn't shoot anyone. And after a few minutes, I said to my son, Jonathan, who was 19 at the time, are you frightened? He said, no, I'm not. Isn't that strange? I said, neither am I, neither is your mother. And he knows it. And he's frightened. And he kept us for about an hour. And then out of nowhere, another soldier appeared at one o'clock in the morning. And we were free. But the important point was, God had taught us that there is no requirement for anxiety. We had to admit that we were not courageous, because you're only courageous when you overcome fear. And there was no fear involved. And in the next two years, neither Sally nor I were fearful. It just wasn't there. God can do that. But you have to go beyond your comfort zone. The first time I took students with me to Africa, I took many over the years, at their behest, I had a, what I call my medical student abuse program. Uh, these were preclinical students and I took them with me to Africa and I spent half a day training them to resuscitate a malnourished child. And then I walked with them for one to two days into the bush to a village that I had chosen for them that I wanted surveyed and left them there for five weeks. Uh, two days work from anyway and they didn't know how to get back anyway. Uh, and they had to do a health survey of the village and find and resuscitate two malnourished children. The very first village I took three girls to they hadn't travelled much, they were rather naive. One was a French-Canadian and 
two were Christian. Now the 30 to 40 students we took, only six were Christian overall because I was interested in idealists. And two of these were Christian, fortunately. And we got to the village, which is one of my favorite villages, now destroyed. And we came out of the rainforest at about four in the afternoon and the, the only white people who'd been in that village in the previous 20 years was my family. The first time I went there, they scratched my skin to see what the children, to see whether it was black underneath. Um, and they were delighted. They'd arranged a feast. So uh, they brought the goat in and cut its throat right there. This was new preparation of supper for the girls. They'd not seen it done quite that way before. Uh, and then some hours later we were served. This tribe does not feed with its honoured guest. It brings the food in and leaves you to eat and then comes back a little. Now because we were honoured guests we had all the best meat, which was basically an anatomy lesson. There was heart and pancreas and thymus and liver, brain, heart, I've already mentioned that. A little bit of muscle, not much. That's for everybody. Uh, now fortunately kidneys were there as well. Um, and of course intestine. No, I knew I'd forgotten something. Now, the girls didn't eat any of that stuff, uh, covered with palm oil. They ate the rice and the bananas. Fortunately, my son and I were European omnivores, so we ploughed our way through a good chunk of the meat. Nobody touched the fish, which they'd walked all day to get because we'd seen it covered with flies when we came in. Anyway, uh, after an hour or so, the Africans came back and were obviously disappointed that we hadn't eaten more. They would have eaten everything. Uh, but we made our feeble excuses and they cleared it away. And then we got to know one another. They sang beautifully and we sang badly. And then the next morning was Sunday. Now, we, they knew that we ate breakfast. They don't. So since we hadn't eaten it the night before, they served it up again. <laughs> no refrigeration. Uh, no electricity. No running water. At this point, the girls were in tears, of course. And I said, you want to go home, don't you? And I got a tearful yes. And I said, tough, your ticket's not due for five weeks. Uh, and then since two of them were Christian, I said, this is where you put your faith on the line. And the, the French-Canadian girl said, I'm going to pray too. <laughs> and so I said, well, read the last chapter of Philippians, which is Paul considering imminent death and saying he's learning whatever state he is to be content. I mean, it was a passage chosen with malice aforethought. And... Uh, a few minutes later, we met in a little hut, a little room in this mud hut. And I can't describe what happened next except to say that the whole room became filled with joy. We were all in tears. We were all breaking the University of Ottawa's harassment guidelines, hugging one another. Uh, and after a few minutes, we calmed down. And Julie, the French-Canadian girl, said, I don't know what's happened, but I'm not frightened anymore. And then she said, you're going to preach in bad French this morning. Why don't you do it in English and I'll translate to French and then they'll go to the tribal language. It'd actually be better. I said it would be. So we went to church and it lasted three hours. Uh, when we got back, one African had noticed that these girls had eaten every piece of fruit they'd been offered. So while we were in church, he had gathered every fruit that was available and there was a bowl present. Then he said to the girls, what do you like to eat? What do you not like to eat? I'm going to look after you. They had the most wonderful six, five weeks. Julie became a Christian that morning. Uh, she'd been anxious all through school up until that point. He disappeared that morning and never came back. That's our God. Uh, that's what you have to remember. We inhabit a huge and wonderful story, but we don't tell it very well. You've certainly got to teach it to your children because that's where the virtues come from. You see, Christian, the stories of the Bible are different from other stories in that they are morally consequential. Does anybody get away with anything in the Bible? They don't, do they? It might be 500 years before God brings the judgment, but, <laughs> but he always brings it, you know. The Valley of Jezreel, look how long it took to sort that one out, but he did. And he promises that he always will. So if you grow up with those stories, don't do the American thing and make them nice. Read them as they are, including the one about the Levite chopping up his concubine into bits and sending it round Israel and starting a war. They go, whoa. But as long as you're there, they're perfectly secure. That's their security. But they're learning moral consequence. That's where virtues come from. And we need to teach that. It's desperately needed. It's the greatest gift that we can give to our nations in the next few years of being people who can be trusted 
because moral consequence is the centre of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and care, for the way that you have fashioned a story that is so rich, so detailed, so coherent. Forgive us when we turn over the pages and are bored, waiting for what we want to do next. Give us, we pray, a love and passion for your word that we may bring it into our families and see in those families those who honour you by the way they live because of the way they have been trained. In your name we ask it. Amen.